So there's this movie called Taken. Have you seen it? Wink at me or raise your hand or something if you've seen it. It's okay to admit it, guys. It's PG-13 and Aslan is the main character. Liam Neeson says, don't worry about it. Anyways, there's this movie called Taken. It's about a father named Brian Mills, who's an ex-CIA agent, and he retired from his job in order to be closer to his daughter. Toward the beginning of the film, Brian, Brian's daughter invites him to lunch, and he's thrilled because he misses his daughter, and he hasn't been given a lot of opportunities to see her. But quickly he discovers that the reason she's invited him is in order to ask for her for his permission to accompany a friend on a whirlwind trip through Europe. The idea of the trip makes this guy very uncomfortable because his daughter is only 17, but she's really upset when he begins to express hesitation and his ex-wife basically throws a temper tantrum. So in the end, Brian backs down and signs the form. The first stop on his daughter's trip is in Paris. And the action of the film begins when Brian calls to make sure his daughter arrives safely. They're discussing her trip when all of a sudden she hears the screams of her best friend. And she, th- she looks through one of the windows of the loft and sees that some very scary men, henchmen of an international sex trafficking cartel, have broken in and are pulling her best friend out of the front door. Obviously, she's terrified. The most famous scene of this film unfolds as the camera closes in on Brian's face. He immediately understands what's happening. And he says to his daughter, get under the bed, breathe, calm down and listen very carefully. They're going to take you. She screams and drops the phone when they find her. And a few, a few moments later, one of these awful men picks up the phone lying on the floor. And that's when Brian Mills speaks the following words. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Even if you haven't seen this movie, you've heard those words, right? Those words have become cinematic legend. Because what follows is a stunning display of righteous fire. Every scene, from the moment he hangs up the phone to the last moments of the film, every scene that follows is an awesome, moving display of merciless vengeance and terrifying rage against wicked men. Brian Mills single-handedly crushes the criminal underground of Paris. He beats, he tortures, he murders wicked men in cold blood to save his daughter. And it's beautiful. It's magnificent, and it's moving. See, the movie Taken is an homage to a father's righteous wrath. 
If there's a short list of God's popular attributes, I'm not sure wrath would be on it. You don't hear many anthems on Christian radio celebrating God's wrath, do you? And when you stumble across a hymn that celebrates God's wrath, it's striking, isn't it? Because it's rare. There's something wrong with us, I think. At least I know that there's something wrong with me. Because when I read passages about God's wrath against the wicked, I don't often swell with praise. I wilt. I sober. Sometimes when I think of God's wrath poured out on the earth. But here's the thing. I love that movie, Taken. I rejoice at the righteous wrath of a father crushing the wicked without mercy in order to save his daughter. And I love Lord of the Rings. I rejoice when Aragorn's swift blade pierces the Orkai. When the trolls fall to Gimli's righteous axe, right? When the goblin is pierced by Legus' true arrow. I love Braveheart. And I rejoice when William Wallace's vengeance mercilessly crushes the traitor nobles of Scotland. In other words, I regularly celebrate righteous wrath. My heart swells at its display. I don't have a problem with righteous wrath. I have a problem with God's righteous wrath. Do you? I'm asking honestly, and I want you to think about it. Are you ashamed of God's wrath? My goal today is to teach your heart to celebrate the wrath of God. We're going to read passages that explain the wrath of God. We're going to read stories that exhibit the wrath of God. And we're going to look forward to the promises of the coming wrath of God. And we're doing this in order to make a very important connection. The wrath of God is not anything to be ashamed of. God's wrath is as fundamental to His character as His mercy, as His kindness, as His love, as His hope. It is to be celebrated It is to be worshipped. There is no gospel without God's wrath. There is no redemption without God's wrath. And my hope for you is that your heart would begin to swell with worship when you encounter the display of God's wrath in the Scriptures. So let's get to it. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 9. It should be right about in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 9. We're going to read together, starting in verse 5. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice, and He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know Your name put their trust in You. For You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. 
Okay, so I chose this passage to begin because it's super simple and it's super clear. Today, I'm going to give you three reasons to celebrate the wrath of God. And these three reasons follow what I think is a biblical formula. Anytime God's wrath unfolds, three things happen. Anytime God's wrath unfolds, three things happen. And all three of those things unfold in the wrath of King David. And all of those things are promised in the coming wrath of King Jesus. And all three of those things happen in this song that we just read. Three things. The wicked are crushed. Worship is restored. And God gives shelter to those who trust Him. Let me personally apologize for the shade of green I chose. Okay, first, God's wrath crushes the wicked and permanently ends their wickedness. Read it again. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. The wickedness of the inhabitants of Canaan was legendary. They molested sojourners in public plazas for centuries. They murdered infants as sacrifice to bloodthirsty idols for centuries. They waged war against the innocent for centuries. Can you imagine centuries of tragic displays of treachery, generations of abuse, infanticide, prostitution, gluttony, drunkenness, rape, murder? Generations upon generations of cruelty. God, in His wrath, ended them. He crushed these wicked men. He blotted out their name forever. God crushed the wicked nations and He ended their violence. So, I think that these terms are so abstract for us that it's difficult to conceptualize. We talk so much about the wickedness of the Canaanites that we're almost numb to it. These people lived... So long ago, their culture was so different from ours, their customs are hardly recognizable. So let me place this in a framework you might better understand. There are right now, right at this moment, in every major city in the United States, sex trafficking rings. These men steal children for the gratification of perverts. It is an unspeakable wickedness. For major events like Super Bowls, thousands of adolescents are delivered sometimes in cargo trucks, sometimes in delivery vans, to rent houses around local stadiums so that perverts might be gratified. That is true and that is happening now. Tell me something. If you could snap your fingers to crush these wicked men and to blot them out forever, and to end their unimaginable wickedness, tell me, wouldn't you do it? The first reason to celebrate God's wrath is this, because God crushes the wicked and ends their wickedness forever. Second, God's wrath restores worship. Keep reading. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. 
In the wake of God's righteous wrath, the world is reminded of His justice. The world is reminded of His throne. The world is reminded of His righteousness, His uprightness, His holiness. The wrath of God teaches us who God is and what God is like by contrast. Have you ever sat in a room reading by the natural light of the sun until late in the evening? You grow accustomed hour after hour to the dwindling light of dusk, right? And you might not realize it because it's happening so gradually, but every moment your eyes are straining to read the words until somebody walks in and flips the light on. Two things happen immediately. First, something like pain when the darkness is stifled by the bright light. But then, almost immediately thereafter, you realize how dark it had been and how bright is the light that replaces that darkness, right? That's sort of what happens in the wake of God's wrath. The darkness is stifled by light and then our attention is drawn to the light. We're struck by the absence of wickedness for a moment. But ultimately, our attention rests on the righteousness that ended the wickedness. The uprightness of God is on display when He ends the wretchedness of men. The righteousness of God is on display when He ends the wickedness of men. The justice of God is on display when He ends the injustice of men. And so we worship Him. The second reason to celebrate God's wrath is this, because God's wrath restores worship. Third, God has made a way to escape His wrath. He provides shelter for those who trust Him. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know Your name put their trust in You. For You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. We have each one of us earned the wrath of God, but He has made a way to escape His wrath. Our sin has earned His fire. His vengeance is stored up against those who would twist His creation to their own ends, those who would abuse their peers, those who would reject His law. In other words, His wrath is stored up for people like me and for people like you. But He has made a way for His people. He has made a way for escape for those who trust Him. He who was their greatest enemy has become their fortress. He is a stronghold for those who place their trust in Him. He will never forsake those who seek Him. Better words have never been spoken. The people of God are the beneficiaries of the wrath of God. What is left in the wake of God's wrath? The land is restored. The memory of darkness will fade. And what is left? Peace among the household of God. Those who trust Him have a place free of wickedness, free of darkness, free of pain and sorrow, free of tears. Those who know God's name and who trust Him are made free. The third reason to celebrate God's wrath is this. Because God has made a way to escape His wrath the faithful find shelter from the wrath of God. Trust Him, seek Him, and you'll find a stronghold in the day of wrath and peace on the other side of it. So, that's the biblical formula. That's the structure. It's everywhere throughout the Scriptures. Test me on it. 
Anytime God's wrath unfolds, three things happen. And I want you to remember this because it will help us understand this moment in David's life. Anytime God's wrath unfolds, three things happen. Wickedness is crushed, worship is restored, and shelter is provided for those who trust him. Got it? All right, let's turn to 2 Samuel 5. We're going to read the first ten verses. Second Samuel 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us in. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of all my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed King David, they anointed David king over Israel. David was thirty years old when he began to reign, and reigned forty years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. At Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah thirty three years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who had said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David can't come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into this house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. This passage begins where we left off in April. David is crowned king of Israel, not only by the tribe of Judah, but by all the tribes of Israel. And if you pay attention to the words of the elders of Israel, you'll see that they are all in. This isn't half-hearted submission. This isn't an acknowledgement of political inevitability. Listen to their words. We are your bone and flesh. When Saul was king over us, it was you who let out. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd over my people Israel, and you shall be prince. In other words, the elders of Israel crowned David king and immediately admit that he was always truly the one who led them, even in the days of Saul. And then they recite God's promise to make David king over all Israel. In a word, the people of Israel are ready for the true king. They are done with civil wars. They are finished with pretender kings. They're placing their trust in God and in God's anointed. They have placed their trust in God and in God's anointed. So David's first act as king is to take Jerusalem. And this is significant for a number of reasons. First, the people of Israel have been in a passive state of rebellion since the death of Moses. Because they were told to take the land, all of the land, and they chose not to. For generations now, the people of Israel have simply refused to obey God. He asked them to go to war against the ancient inhabitants of the land, and they said no. David was different. 
from the moment he began to lead the armies of Israel, David was obedient. He hasn't stopped making war against the the wicked inhabitants of the land. Not once. It's almost like a character distinctive. No matter where he is, no matter what he's doing, he's always working to obey the word of God to wage war against the wicked. So when we learn that David's first act as king is to take the city of Jerusalem, we shouldn't be surprised. He's faithful to the covenant. And he knows that there is no life in disobedience. So he wages war against the wicked, just like God asked him to do. But that isn't the only reason that this decision is significant. Jerusalem is the center of the redemptive universe. All the work of God to rescue His people revolves around Jerusalem. It was the home of Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace, priest of the Most High God, to whom grandfather Abraham gave his tribute. Within the walls of Jerusalem was Mount Moriah, upon which grandfather Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only beloved son. And whether David truly understood the coming redemptive significance of this city, whether he knew that upon this mount our Savior would be murdered to purchase God's people, we can only guess. But all of the citizens of Israel knew that Jerusalem was a special city. A city that for some reason God chose to bless with His presence. A city which punctuated the stories of the ancient fathers. Of course, David would lead his people to take Jerusalem as a matter of first importance. And this is where our passage assumes the structure of God's wrath against the wicked. This is where we see this formula play out. When David arrives in Jerusalem, he first crushes the wicked. David's men arrive to find an impregnable fortress. The stronghold of Zion was nearly perfect. A walled city naturally surrounded by valleys on three sides. The the inhabitants were so confident that they shouted to David's men, you'll not come in here. The blind and the lame will ward you off. David didn't think that was a funny joke. He was in in a particularly tricky situation though. There was literally no good way to attack the city, at least on the surface. But there is one unique feature of the stronghold of Zion. The walled city of Zion sat upon a hill within a stone's throw of a natural spring. It was a source of fresh water to the city's inhabitants throughout the year. And they had devised a particularly clever way to access that water. A series of natural and artificial cataracts were cut into the limestone that allowed the inhabitants of the city access to the freshwater spring, even in case of a siege. This series of holes and tunnels and shafts were nearly impossible to navigate on the best of days. And the city was protected by a 14-meter-high natural water shaft that split the limestone in two and separated a lower access tunnel from a higher, more protected channel. In other words, the water was simple to access by the city's inhabitants, but it was nearly impossible to access the city through the water shaft. Nearly impossible. David's men weren't average soldiers. They were spectacular soldiers. They were instruments of God's wrath and the might of God was on display through their strength and their ingenuity and their cunning. So David not only discovered the existence of this water shaft, 
but realized that his men could scale the 14-meter shaft in order to attack the city from within, unaware. And as he commissions his men to do so, he turns their wicked words back upon them. Climb up the water shaft to strike these blind and lame. The wrath of God was on display in the might of the anointed king, and these wicked men were crushed, and their wickedness was stifled. And as soon as David crushes the wicked, the worship of God begins to be restored in Jerusalem. This victory was legendary. And shortly thereafter, Mount Zion was called the city of David. His obedience to the covenant was infectious. And the people of God began to rally behind the anointed king of Israel. Just as soon as this victory is proclaimed, David begins to refer to, the, to Jerusalem in terms of the house of God. And he will spend the bulk of his life in Jerusalem gathering supplies to construct the temple to usher the worship of God's people to the God who made a place for them in the promised land. He has crushed the wicked in order to usher the praise of God's people. And in the wake of the wrath of God, Mount Zion was no longer a bastion of wickedness, but a house of worship. The wicked were crushed. And the worship was restored. Finally, in the wake of God's wrath, Jerusalem becomes a shelter for those who trust God. Establishing a capital for the kingdom of Israel. All who, seek, all who would seek God, all who would trust the work of God for rescue. All the oppressed who sought shelter underneath the, His wings could find a stronghold in Jerusalem. The walls of Jerusalem were a stronghold for the people of God for generations thereafter. In the face of the wrath of God, the faithful are promised shelter. Anytime God's wrath unfolds, three things happen. The wicked are crushed, worship is restored, and shelter is provided to those who trust Him. David's first act as king was a demonstration of God's wrath. David's first act as king was to crush the wicked, to restore the worship of God, and to establish a shelter for the people of God. And that's a breathtaking display of God's judgment and God's justice and God's faithfulness toward those who would trust Him. Yet David's wrath is but a grim shadow of the wrath of the son of David. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped with blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following on him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. These are John's words. Prophecies of the coming wrath of the Son of David. It is not a coincidence that David's first act as a consummated king of Israel is to lead Israel's people against the wicked. 
to take the city of Jerusalem to restore God's worship and establish God's people. Because the wrath of King David is a grim shadow of the wrath of King Jesus. Our King has promised to return. And on that day, the sky will be lit with the righteousness of He who is called faithful and true. And on that day, He'll have fire in His eyes. And on that day, He'll bear a sharp sword to strike down the nations. And on that day, He'll pour out the fury of God's wrath. Let me tell you why that's good news. First, Celebrate the wrath of God because it means the wickedness, the end of wickedness forever. When Christ returns, the wicked will be crushed forever. All that is dark in this world, all that causes pain, all that stirs hopelessness, all that provokes despair will be stifled in a moment. Sin will be no more. And you want that. It's the reason we flinch when we turn on the news. It's the reason we avoid talking about Syria. Because the suffering that we all know is unfolding right now all over the world is unspeakable. And you and I, whether we can admit it or not, cannot wait for that suffering, that darkness, that wickedness to end. Christ will return. And in a word, the wicked will be crushed And we celebrate the wrath of God because it means the end of wickedness forever. Two, celebrate the wrath of God because it means that worship will be restored forever. When Christ returns, perfect worship will be restored. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Creation will sing of the faithfulness of God in Christ. When Christ returns and pours out the wrath of God, all will know their sin. All will see His righteousness. And all will worship His holy name. When sin is crushed, the justice of God is on display. When sin is crushed, the holiness of God is on display. When sin is crushed, the faithfulness of God to shelter the oppressed from the wicked is on display. We will see it in breathtaking glory. And we will all bow before Him. And we will worship in spirit and in truth forever. Third, celebrate the wrath of God because Christ has made a way for you to escape it. Just a moment ago, I read the vision of Christ's return in Revelation 19. The passage is powerful, full of military might and righteous fire. White horses, armies, wrath. In righteousness He makes war. Yet just in the middle of that paragraph, we stumble across the following words. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. The Word of God. That's a not-so-subtle allusion to the first chapter of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, not anything, uh, without him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, 
and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I've thought a lot about it, and I think I know why it's easy for me to celebrate the wrath, the display of righteous wrath at the movies because I identify with Aragorn, not the Orkai. I see myself as Legolas, not the pierced goblin. I rally behind William Wallace, not even considering that I might be the traitor in this story. But I am the traitor. I have twisted creation to my ends. I am a steward of God's stuff, and I stole God's stuff. I have broken a sacred covenant. And I carry a a great debt. And so do you. This is why the world hates the gospel. Because the gospel begins with the story of your sin. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and and misery. Goodness gracious, can there be a heavier indictment than that? You have earned God's wrath and it is coming for you, so you must find shelter in the blood of Jesus. The best reason the most pressing reason, the most important reason to celebrate the wrath of God is that He has made a way for you to escape it. And that way is through the blood of Jesus. Jesus Christ took your sin and offers you His righteousness. If you trust Him, you'll stand before the judgment seat of God wearing the righteousness of Christ. If you paint His blood on your threshold, the angel of death will pass over your home. Take shelter in the blood of Jesus. It is your only hope. And when you do, rejoice in the coming wrath of God because wickedness will cease, worship will be restored, and the people of God will be safe and secure forever. Amen. Let's celebrate it at the supper. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. 
For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.